Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're starting a brand new and exciting series called I Will Tell, and it focuses on the importance of telling the world about Jesus and proclaiming His Word. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 78 verses 1 to 4 and join Dr. John Newfeld for this important message. In Shakespeare's play Macbeth, Macbeth says something that many of us are afraid just might be true. He says, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Compare that perspective on the meaning of life with the one found in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 1 to 4, which I will read in a moment, is a part of one of the great historical psalms recounting the history of Israel and showing why remembering what God has done in the past will give meaning, hope, purpose, and will provide a safeguard against our lives ending in disaster. Furthermore, Psalm 78, verse 4, highlights a command. I will tell, it says. I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which has been done in the past from the next generation. I will make sure that before I die, the people coming after me will know not only what I know, but will be able to live with meaning and hope and purpose. And that's our theme this week. Not only will I believe, but I will tell. For if I don't tell, the lives of countless people will end in disaster. Their lives will be full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what's at stake. See, most of us know that ours is a culture that has forgotten the God of the Bible. It once had the gospel preached to it. Canada was called a dominion because Sir Leonard Tilley, premier of New Brunswick and one of the fathers of confederation, suggested to the founders of our nation that Psalm 72 verse 8 ought to pervade this new land. The verse simply reads a prayer, may he, that is, may the God of the Bible have dominion from sea to sea. That name, Dominion, struck and was imprinted on the Canadian coat of arms. Originally, what we now call Canada Day was called Dominion Day. That name was only changed in 1982 on a Friday when all the members of Parliament went home and less than a dozen erased a memory of our biblical heritage. Jacques Cartier, when in 1533 sailed up the St. Lawrence, wrote in his diary, we all kneel down in the company of the Indians with our hands raised toward heaven, yielding thanks to God. And Samuel de Champlain, when first encountering the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, wrote in his diary, I should be committing a great sin if I did not make it my business to devise some means of bringing them the knowledge of God. And by the way, there are those who credit the Canadian celebration of Thanksgiving to him. Our Thanksgiving is intended as a celebration to the God of the Bible. David Thompson, one of Canada's great explorers, said he made maps through the wilderness so that these barriers may be traversed and the gospel be spread. The examples of the presence of the gospel in the founding of Canada are impressive. McGill University, as well as the University of Toronto, were founded by Christians. Canada's public school system was founded by Egerton Ryerson, a Methodist missionary concerned that all children should be taught to read the Bible. In fact, during a revival held in Ottawa in 1888, that day, standing to his feet to trust Christ as his Savior and Lord for the first time, was our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. MacDonald. 
Apparently, many of his colleagues who knew him well in that meeting openly wept for joy. By all accounts, from that day onward, MacDonald was a changed man. His testimony was used to urge Canadians to follow his examples and surrender their lives to Christ as well. But now many Canadians don't remember our heritage, and because of that, wouldn't be able to tell you a single Bible story or tell you why these stories are the difference between life and death. I fear too many of us have become like what the French author André Marois wrote. The universe is indifferent, he said. Who created it? Why are we here upon this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I'm quite convinced that no one else has the least idea either. And that's precisely how many people live today. The universe doesn't care about them. Why are they here? What does life mean? Is there anything more important than my wants and desires, my personal safety, comfort, and my satisfaction? What does it mean to be a human being? Am I just the product of a random stage of evolutionary development? Or was I created for a noble purpose? What happens to a person at death? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know what's good and evil? Is there a roadmap for my life? What's the meaning of history? Most Canadians today would not know how to answer these questions. And does it make any difference when we can't answer these questions? Back in 1940, George Orwell, reflecting on the Western world's rejection of God, wrote these lines. He said, for 200 years, and he meant the 200 years from the Enlightenment to the present day, for 200 years, Western culture has sawed and sawed and sawed at the branch we're sitting on. That branch, by the way, is the belief in the God of the Bible. And then he goes on to say, and in the end, much more suddenly than anyone had foreseen, our efforts were rewarded and down we came. But unfortunately, there has been a little mistake. The thing at the bottom was not a bed of roses after all. It was a cesspool full of barbed wire. And Christian author Oz Guinness has described or summarized the new modern values of Western culture that most Canadians accept without even knowing it. See, in our day, writes Guinness, There is no truth, only truths. There are no principles, only preferences. There is no grand reason, only reasons. There is no privileged civilization, only a multiple of cultures and beliefs and periods and styles. There's no grand narrative of human progress, only countless stories of where people and their cultures are now, end quote. People have lost meaning and a reason to both die and to live. That's why psychologically we're ill. Instant gratification has replaced purpose. My deeply treasured feelings have replaced both reason and revelation. My point of view has replaced objectivity. My values have replaced good and evil. My wants have replaced my purpose. My perspective has replaced God. You know, some time ago, I had a conversation with a young woman who had contracted genital herpes. It's extremely painful. It produces raw, painful, sore blisters and also includes headaches and backaches. And as you know, there's no cure. She told me in our conversation that she had never heard the gospel, not once. She'd never had anyone ever explain the Bible, not once. She told me that she didn't know a single thing the Bible actually taught. But she said in our conversation, if someone had told me sex was for marriage alone and had told me why that was both beautiful and the Creator's design, my life would have been very different. For one, she said, I wouldn't have genital herpes. 
I'd probably be married and have kids. But, you know, even if she didn't have kids and wasn't married, and even if she was sick with another illness, she'd still know who she was. She'd know where she was going. She would know what life was for, and she would know her God. See, I know many of us believe that what has happened in our culture has never happened before, that a people once knew this God and now have forgotten him. But we're wrong. Psalm 78 speaks of Israel's rejection of their God and the consequences that came. In verse 9, we're told that the Ephraimites forgot God and turned back in the day of battle. And then in verses 32 and 33, we're told that when Israel did not believe, their days vanished like a breath and their years in sorrow. And in verses 61 and 62, we're told that eventually this forgetting of God meant that their enemies won the battle over them. And instead of serving God, Israel served a nation that had no mercy on them whatsoever. And with these words of warning, a man named Asaph writes a psalm. Now, if you don't know who he was, Asaph was a worship leader in ancient Israel. He was appointed by King David to lead Israel in worship. And a great part of worship is putting into poetry and music the great deeds of God to help God's people remember what he has done. So here's what Asaph writes to Israel. He writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now that's an introduction. Asaph is saying, everyone listen up, give ear. In fact, lean your ear a little closer in my direction. What I'm about to say, you won't want to miss. I want to tell you a story and not just a story, a story that's actually a parable. This is a story that if you listen to it, will teach you to be wise. I'll teach you how to live life with skill and the outcome of your life will be good. Okay, are you leaning your ear in his direction? And then Asaph adds something more. My parable comes in the way of a dark saying. That doesn't mean it's a secret saying or an evil saying. Rather, a dark saying is like a perplexing saying, a difficult saying. What I'm going to say is really going to make you think, so lean over just a little more closely. That's because what I have to say, I'm going to have to tell you that when people forget God, God still remains faithful. And then Asaph adds, the reason you want to lean right in is because what I have to say comes of old from God's great actions in history, from the way that God dealt with us in the past. So when I come back, we're going to look at how God's dealings in the past must be communicated to our world today. Sometimes it's hard to picture how far our nation has gone in removing itself from God. But this points to a bigger reality that humanity as a whole so easily forgets God and as a result, societies and nations end up in increasing levels of degradation and despair. When we return after the break, Dr. Neufeld will unpack this reality further and help us understand why above all else, we must continue to proclaim the truth about God. Thanks for listening today. You know, we're getting gradually closer to the first ever Israel experience coming this October 30th to November 9th. Along with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, and musical guest The Weebs, this will be a transformative experience in the Holy Land like no other. Guests will visit major biblical sites, soak in the vibrant and welcoming culture, and see the diverse geographical landscapes of this beautiful region. Space is still available, so why not join us and register today? Visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. 
Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. I recently had a conversation with a young woman about the movie The Titanic. I think I might be the only person left in North America who didn't see the movie, but I have read plenty of reviews. As I understand it, according to the movie, when the ship starts to sink, the rich men start to scramble for the few lifeboats on board, shoving aside women and children. British sailors then draw their guns and fire them into the air, shouting, stand back, women and children first. And folks, that's Hollywood, and it never happened. Let me read to you from uh, Dr. Don Carson. He writes, The universal testimony of the witnesses who survived the sinking of the Titanic is that the men hung back and actually urged the women and children into the lifeboats. John Jacob Astor, the richest man on earth, a Bill Gates of 1912, literally dragged his wife and children to a boat, shoved them on, and then refused to get on himself, backed up, and would not go. Benjamin Guggenheim also refused to get on and actually said, tell my wife that Benjamin Guggenheim knows his duty. He drowned. There is not a single report of some rich man displacing a woman or a child in a mad rush for survival. Now back to Dr. Carson. He says, when the film was first reviewed in the New York Times, the reviewer asked why the producer and director of that film had distorted history so flagrantly in this regard. And might I add, so horribly dishonoring to the bravery and sacrifice of those men. Carson says the scene was depicted as an implausible scene from the very beginning. British sailors drawing handguns? Most British police officers do not carry handguns. British sailors certainly do not. So why this willful distortion of history? And then the reviewer in the New York Times answered his own question. He said, if the producer and the director had told the truth, no one would have believed them. And then let me go back to what Dr. Carson said. I have seldom read a more damning indictment of the development of Western culture, especially Anglo-Saxon culture in the last century. One hundred years ago, there remained in our culture enough residue of the Christian virtue of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, of the moral imperative that seeks the other's good at personal expense, that Christians and non-Christians alike thought it noble, if unremarkable, to choose death for the sake of others. A mere century later, such a course is judged so unbelievable that history has to be distorted, end quote. Now contrast that to the sinking of the Estonia in 1994, making it the worst maritime disaster since World War II in which over 850 people lost their lives. The survivors there were almost all strong young men. There were no survivors under the age of 12. Those who made it to the lifeboats were the ones strong enough to scramble to get there. And that's the history that now sounds believable to us. That's the culture we now take for granted. We have adopted the evolutionary model, the fittest survive. That's the cesspool full of barbed wire that George Orwell warned us about. Think about the value of human life in our culture. 300 unborn children lose their lives every day in Canada because they are unwanted. Today, over 90% of couples with a Down syndrome child choose to abort because those children are imperfect. Atheist Richard Dawkins has even said that it is immoral not to abort a Down syndrome baby. 
Well, that's what's happening at one end of life. In February 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada unanimously ruled the prohibition on voluntary active euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide, the prohibition against that, violates the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. They have given the government of Canada one year to draft new legislation to speak to this. Would you pray for this matter? Quebec has already allowed for what is called terminal palliative sedation, which allows medical professionals under certain conditions to put people suffering from a terminal illness to death. See, many Christians are concerned. If the only life that is considered valuable is that of the strongest and the fittest of us, what can that mean? It seems that we've traded the values of the Titanic for the values of the Estonia. What happens when a people forgets God? Well, many things. But you can almost guess what I'm now going to say. When a people forget God, they forget love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. They forget the model of Christ who gave himself for us. Decency is lost and its place comes the ideal of doing what is in one's own best interest. We've all now taken the side of Cain, and we have shouted into the face of our Creator, I am not my brother's keeper. And that's what Asaph knew. He knew how easily the knowledge of God is forgotten, even within one generation. If it is not actively taught and proclaimed, darkness descends. The New Living Translation says of Psalm 78, verse 4, We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation. And then, of course, the rest of the psalm tells what must be told, the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea and the rebellion against God in the wilderness and and the love of God in providing manna in spite of people's rebellion, this mercy of God. I mean, on and on go the stories. Recount them, says Asaph. Declare, I will tell. Of course, as we read through the Old Testament, this kind of command is repeatedly given. In Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites to tell their children even to write the great things of God in their houses, on their mantles, and on their door frames. In Joshua, Israel builds memorial pillars so that when the children should ask, what do these stones mean? Joshua says, take this opportunity to tell the next generation who wasn't there. This is what God did on this spot. And by the time of David, says Asaph, I mean, the list has gotten longer. So for us today as believers in Jesus, the list has gotten a lot longer than it was in Asaph's day. Above all, our list includes the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the building of his church, and the printed record of an inerrant word of God, which is the only book humanity has written in the finger of God himself. And that brings me to our theme, I will tell. Let's start at the most basic level. According to Asaph, we must teach our children. Parents, it is your obligation to instruct your kids in the faith. Here's a horrifying story. I was recently talking to an administrator of a Christian university who told me there are now kids coming from Christian homes who can't even recall John 3.16. Please let me get just a bit prophetic. Mom and Dad, if you're dragging your kids to hockey games and violin lessons and ballet, taking all the time for that and are not teaching them to know the Word of God, you are condemning them to the cesspool full of barbed wire that George Orwell spoke of. My, oh my, how we disregard the welfare of our children. 
But then let me get beyond that to the New Testament narrative. Jesus commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. While it is true that not all of us are called to be full-time preachers, all of us are called to make the gospel known in the sphere of influence that God, by his sovereign design, has placed us. We must tell others who are not our children, and for those of us who live in Canada, I want you to love your country so passionately that you must tell of the great deeds of God and how faith in this God will change both the present and the eternity of individuals and of the nation in which we live. Here's what we should all know with a great deal of certainty. The battle for the dignity of human life is not going to be won in the arena of politics or in the arena of law. It is won or lost when a people remember or forget God. Furthermore, it is won or lost when the people of God determine to tell or neglect to tell. Now, just by way of what you might expect, during this week I have no intention to make us feel guilty for not evangelizing as we should. Instead, during this week, I want to provide everyone who's listening with tools. I want to provide you with tools to be able to share the gospel with those whom you know. Would you join me this week as we determine, I will tell. John, your message has got me excited. And I know this is a passion of both of ours relative to our nation. So where do we begin? Where does it all start? I think it begins with us, each one of us saying, I will tell, as we've said. I have a little proposition to make that in the the next decade, if every single believer in Christ in this country won one person to Christ, only one, we would call that the greatest advance of the gospel in the history of this land. It's not that hard. We just have to learn how to do it, how to move conversations into spiritual conversations and begin to be witnesses. What a great opportunity. So looking forward to this series. And I know this is going to provide great opportunity for all of us to win someone for Christ in our kingdom. I will tell. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada. As Christians, we're all called to be salt and light wherever God has placed us in our homes, our workplaces, our communities. I think this is a much-needed reminder and exhortation that our lives must be about the business of telling people about who He is, whether it's to our own children, family members, co-workers, or friends. But this all starts with a knowledge of Him that transforms our hearts. I hope you join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld presents to us the tools that will help us tell the gospel story in our series, I Will Tell. Since our founding in Canada in 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has been faithful to its mission of teaching and engaging people with God's Word. Our heart is to tell the next generation about God and what He's done through His primary means of revelation to us. And we believe these timeless truths have the power and hope to transform countless lives across this great country. In over 50 years, we've come a long way, but we believe there's much, much more that God has in store for this ministry. In an era of increasing biblical illiteracy, there's an added urgency and significance to what we do. To take this ministry to the next level, would you commit to praying for us and potentially becoming a financial partner? It would be an honor to serve God with you as we continue to help people grow in their spiritual journeys. 
Thank you for considering playing a part in this important mission for God's kingdom and to win back our nation for Jesus. If you feel led to give, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.